I have to say, as kindly, but as forcefully as I can, that to my mind, if words mean anything, both Brian McLaren and Steve Chalk have largely abandoned the gospel. That's Don Carson writing about the emergent church movement, a postmodern movement that seems uh, to reimagine or reinvent church and the understanding of the Bible for a modern world. Here's another one. I lost a couple of hours of my life reading Rob Bell's Love Wins, one of the most frustrating, depressing, and heretical books I've ever read. So why bother writing about it? Because again, Christians in the UK are being fed poison by a false prophet, and far too many of us seem to drink the poison, mainly because we do not recognize it as such. It's about Rob Bell, one of the prominent emergent church leaders, one of Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in the world a few years ago. And here, uh, the Free Church of Scotland minister, David Robertson, is calling him a false prophet. Some of those quotes make you squirm a little bit, seem maybe a bit harsh, a way to be talking about somebody who professes to be a Christian. Maybe makes us feel a bit uncomfortable, may seem a bit uncharitable even. Well, I think it's the correct way, the right way, and exactly what Peter would have wanted to happen. Done with discernment, much prayer and wisdom, ultimately much testing of what is being said, rigorous study. If you want to read Don Carson's book, it's about 300 pages around it. But necessary. Peter wants us to recognize false teaching. It's the whole purpose of this letter. He's laid out the true gospel in chapter one. He's laid out the authenticity and authority of scripture in the second half. And now we come to chapter two. And it's a somber, serious passage, isn't it? It's been called the ugly stepchild of the New Testament, this chapter. And like the ugly stepchild in Cinderella, we may feel we can just ignore it, dismiss it, let it get on. We may think, hey, hey, look, I, I couldn't get conned by false teaching. Not, not me, not here at town church. We're doing well. We're, we're established. We're growing. We're part of the FIC, a solid group of churches. They keep each other accountable. No one could get influence in our church to teach anything false about Jesus. We'd work it out quickly. We're clever. We wouldn't listen. Well, this was Peter's deathbed letter. This was literally his final message. The most important truths he wanted to get across to these churches. And he wants these churches, he wants us to be established and to be firm. And so this chapter is a pure and terrifying description of what happens to those who fall foul of false teaching and those who perpetrate it. The New Testament makes it clear that the greatest danger we face is not persecution from the world. Actually, it says the opposite in times of external trial and persecution, the church grows. No, the most dangerous thing, Satan's deadliest attack is false teaching within the church. It's a bit like a doctrinal virus that comes into the church, infiltrates it, it causes disease and damage. And 2 Peter 2 is here to help us identify and eliminate false teaching, just like our body does with a virus. It identifies antibodies, it eliminates it. And chapter one has been a wonderful medicine, wonderful, glorious truth about our salvation, about how it's not earned, it's given, about how we have all we need now to live a godly life through our union with Christ, how it leads to a transformed life 
how we're called now as Mike prayed to live a holy life of, of goodness, of self-control, of perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. And now we see in this chapter why we need to keep reminding ourselves of those truths every day. Because there are wolves out there prowling around to snaffle sheep. There are viruses out there and we need to be aware of them and see them for what they really are, poison. So friends, as we look at this passage, I've framed the headings as application for us. Three things we need to do as we think about false teaching. Town church, don't be naive. Town church, do not be dismayed. And town church, do not be fooled. Firstly, verses one to three, do not be naive. Read down with me. Uh, just from the end of chapter one, chapter one contrasts with the start of chapter two. It says here, two verse one, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Peter tells us there have always been false teachers, both in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. We should expect them. True teachers, true prophets will often be in the minority. The message of a gospel, we're told, Jesus tells us himself, is an unpopular one. It was then and it is now. Peter says in verse one, did you notice it? These false teachers were among you. We're naive if we think that this isn't a threat to us, that these voices will not tempt us. They won't be present in our church. And nowadays, it may not just be the church you uh, attend on a Sunday where you'll hear false teaching. You can log on, listen to sermons, read books and blogs, more information and teaching at your fingertips than ever before. And so we need to be discerning and wise. We need to together weigh teaching, to ask advice. If you've read an interesting blog or listened to a sermon, you weren't sure of something. It sounded maybe too good to be true or I've not heard it like that at all before. Ask someone else to listen and weigh in. Ask one of the elders. We'd love to do that. Ask someone in your home group. Have discernment as we weigh things together. Because Peter tells us it won't be obvious. Verse 2, it says... I mean verse two. I think I mean verse one. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, secretly, subtly introducing destructive heresies. You see, we, we have our antenna raised, don't we? If we hear someone maybe just blatantly deny that Jesus was God, hopefully, hopefully we'd maybe hear that and go, yeah, okay, that's not true. I'm not going to listen to that. But the heresies spouted by these false teachers were subtle, and popular. I don't know if you remember back to um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding, Bishop Michael Curry subtly preached a false gospel. Do you remember the discussion afterwards? Loads of positives about how he preached because he talked of God's love. But as the Queen's chaplain Gavin Ashington said, it was just Christianity light. He said credits where it's due. Christianity light can be very appealing, popular. It reaches out to where people are hurting and encourages them. It reaches out to where they're longing for good change. It promises them that that change can come. It speaks continuously of love and hope. Everyone likes to hear of love and hope. But it has three serious flaws. It doesn't define love. It never delivers on the hope. And it isn't what Jesus preached. Subtle. So, so subtle. So... Here in 2 Peter and today, what was the message which these false teachers were peddling? Well, 
I think it's one major thing which has two key outworkings. First, the major thing is ultimately, and we've seen it because we just looked at the end of chapter one, Peter's reinforced, hopefully, our assurance of the authenticity of scripture, of the prophets, because ultimately these false teachers deny God's word as the ultimate authority. And they do this in two ways. They deny, particularly here, and we'll look at it in chapter three later with Simon next week, they deny the reality of Jesus' return and his coming judgment. And so without Jesus' return and judgment, there's no need for repentance. You can do what you want. Verse 19, we'll look at later. They promise freedom. And verse two, they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. They deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. This meant that they taught that Jesus was king, but not Lord, that he didn't need to have any impact on how you lived. Uh, cheap grace, you could say. And we see that in their preaching. And we see that in their conduct later. And both of these ultimately just deny the authority of God's word, its relevance in modern life. Notice the titles of some of the key books from the emergent church, this movement. Steve Chalk, The Lost Message of Jesus. Rob Bell, Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith. Brian McLaren, The Secret Message of Jesus. I've read bits of all of them in the last few weeks, and I can tell you that they are winsome, charismatic, well-written books aiming to apply scripture to the modern day. But in countless places, they undermine scripture, they distort the Bible and the character of God for their own agenda and subtly portray a new message. Notice those titles. It's applying that they've suddenly found something new. One church movement led by Bill Johnson, Bethel, have even gone so far as to write their own Bible translation, the Passion Translation, as, and this is literally what they say about it. They have uncovered the love language of God that has been missing from other translations. They've suddenly discovered something brand new. Fancy that. Verse three as we get this description of these false teachers, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. Their destruction has not been sleeping. These teachers want to tell us, it's just another way of looking at the issue. I'm just seeing it in a more enlightened way. No, it's false teaching. Let me, and we're gonna spend longer on this point than any of the others, but let me give you an example of how it plays out. Both of these teachers, uh, for Peter and for us. So let's let's come to the UK. Let's come to the modern day. Steve Chalk, you may have heard him, the UK leader of Oasis Churches and Ministries, once the darling of the Evangelical Alliance, now the leader shouting loudest against the biblical definition of marriage. And here he is talking about God in the lost message of Jesus. He says this is the Bible, in fact, never defines him, that is God, as anything other than love. But more than that, it never makes assertions about his anger, power, or judgment independently of his love. He bases his whole book, his whole treatise on 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. And we want to say, yes, that is true. God is love. But it's patently a false sentence. See the subtlety here. The Bible does not only define God as love. Even in 1 John, you may remember he's also defined as light in whom there's no darkness. We've just seen in Isaiah how he's repeatedly described as holy. And then the second sentence is manipulative. It would be just as true to say that the Bible never talks talk about God's love independently of his holiness. 
And where it then plays out for chalk is he raises up one aspect of God over every other is a diminishing the responsibility for sin. Here's what he says. He says, God declared that all creation, including humankind, was very good. That's not to suggest that Jesus is denying our relationship with God is in need of reconciliation, but that he is rejecting any idea that we are somehow beyond the pale. Subtle again, but, but false. Jesus himself explicitly assumes that people are evil. Matthew 7, 11, if you then, though you are evil, Jesus says. Paul in Romans makes it clear that no one is righteous, not even one. Chalk has either forgotten or I want to argue, deliberately misled people by not indicating that, the, uh, that mankind was created very good. That was uttered before the fall in Genesis. And how this plays out is there is no call to holy living, no call to respond in loving obedience to Christ. And this is just what is happening in 2 Peter 2. You deny God's word, you minimize or teach against judgment, and it leads to disobedient living out of kilter with God's word and his will. False teaching comes from a false understanding of Jesus' return and judgment. Let's move to Rob Bell. Kevin DeYoung wrote a 20-page review of Rob Bell. Normally, if you've read most book reviews, they're about 100,000 words. He wrote 20 pages because he felt it was so important. And he said this. He said, I've not spent hours and hours on this review because I'm out to get another pastor. This is about the truth, about how the rightness or wrongness of our theology can do tremendous help or tremendous harm to the people of God. That's why Peter writes this warning. That's why we preach it now. In Love Wins, Rob Bell basically says the traditional understanding of hell, of judgment at Jesus' return is wrong because God is only love and love has only been defined in a particular way, very similar to Steve Chalk. And DeYoung summarizes his book. He says, this is what Bell says. Bell says, hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or the next. There'll be no eternal conscious torment. He certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. Now, more could be said and will need to be said about the doctrine of hell, but de Young rightly sees the problem with teaching against the biblical teaching on Christ's return as judge. He goes on. He says, no doubt, Rob Bell writes as a pastor who wants to care for people struggling with the doctrine of hell. I too write as a pastor. As a pastor, I know that love wins means God people, God's people lose. The bad news of our wrath-deserving wretchedness is so absent that the good news of God's wrath-bearing substitute cannot sing in our hearts. When God is shrunk down to fit our cultural constraints, the cross is diminished. And whenever the cross is diminished, we pain the hearts of God's people and rob them of their joy. Instead of summoning sinners to the cross that they might flee the wrath to come and know the satisfaction of so great a salvation, love wins, assures people that everyone's eternity ends up as heaven eventually. The second chances are good, not just for this life, but for the next. And this teaching is incredibly popular. Incredibly popular. Rob Bell is Oprah's go-to spiritual advisor. And of course it is. It makes God to be the God we want him to be, maybe. It makes God to be the God we want him to be. And we want to say loud and clear, Jesus is a gracious saviour. He is. But he's also a judge who is going to judge the world on behalf of his father. 
if you ever leave town church and move to another another town another city if you move be wise there's a warning here don't be naive be wise listen to the sermons if you can talk to friends who you trust talk to the elders we'd love to have that conversation if you ever are leaving Bicester which churches are holding on to the Bible where I'm going? Which churches are two Peter one churches preaching salvation by grace alone, teaching the seriousness of sin and our need of Christ? Be wise and discerning. Don't be naive. The danger is real. But the teaching is often subtle and popular, but it's deadly. Secondly, don't be dismayed. Verses four to ten. It can seem a bit bleak can't it maybe it's a bit bleak as you've looked at it it can cause us to despair a bit we feel maybe god is absent or oblivious why does god allow this why is it so popular peter wants to show the original readers and he wants to show us that this is not the case do not be despaired dismayed god will judge false teaching and so he gives us three examples You'll notice in them in verses four to nine, he reminds us of the fallen angels from Genesis six involved in sexual depravity. He says they've been sent to hell and they're being held for judgment. They haven't escaped. He tells us of the story of Noah. He says in verse five, he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. And then he tells us of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. You may have seen a lot about uh, RZIM recently, the revelations about Ravi Zacharias' sexual abuse and manipulation. There are also a number of other reports coming out this year, both in the American and UK churches. It is desperately sad. A vicar in London, uh, Reverend Pete Nicholas recently wrote about these reports. He said this, he said, when a Christian organization is shaken or risks being shut down, we're quick to assign it to the devil getting his way. But where such a church organization has responded in an ungodly way, then scripture more readily assigns it to the Lord's chastening hand and judgment. God has not forgotten. He's not oblivious to what's gone on. He's not oblivious to false teaching. We see here in verse nine, key verse here. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and he knows to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The false teachers will be punished. They will rightly be judged and condemned for leading God's people astray. Whether they are officially leaders, clergy, elders, ministry heads, whatever they might be, or whether they're members of churches who are spreading, disseminating heresy, God will rightly judge. But notice what else Peter says here. You notice what he said about Noah and Lot, both described as righteous men who followed God whilst not being perfect, living amidst unrighteousness, living amongst false teaching. And it says they were rescued. I wonder as well if you notice the, the challenge about how Lot was described. It's a challenge for me. It says here, he rescued Lot, verse 7. A righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Lot lived amongst the world for so long, but he was not desensitized to its sin. He was distressed. He was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and he heard. And I was convicted when I read that. So often 
We are titillated by the sin around us. We don't flee it. He was distressed by it. Do we? As we see a world, a culture, our friends, are we tormented by what we see and hear of lives being lived in direct opposition to our Lord? What we watch and what we listen to, are we distressed by teaching which directly opposes God's word? Noah and Lot are a challenge to living faithfully in a lawless world, a world which doesn't follow God. We can be encouraged. We don't need to be dismayed as we see that God knows how to rescue. We may feel like a tiny minority. I wonder whether that will feel more and more of a case going forward. That 2 Peter 2 tells us here to not be dismayed. Our God is a rescuing, saving God who will rightly judge. Finally then, verses 10 to 22. Town church, do not be fooled. Peter shows us these false teachers for what they are, and it is a bleak picture. Firstly, they're full of arrogance. Verse 10, we see that. Bold and arrogant, not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. They're full of arrogance. They despise authority. They do not submit to scripture. The particular reference in verse 10 to heaping abuse on celestial beings, it's debated, but it seems to be them denying the power of evil in the world making light of it in the way angels never would. They're denying God's ultimate authority as he arrogantly claims special insights and new revelation. Here's David Robertson again, speaking about Steve Chalk and the lost message of Jesus. He says, Steve thinks the Anglican church is dying because it teaches the Bible too strictly and too literally. He says that people have lost faith in the Bible because large sections of the church just haven't understood it. Steve has discovered the lost message of Jesus, and the rest of us need to catch up pretty soon. A false teacher will say, I have a special revelation from God, one that isn't often talked about, one that I've just discovered now, that is better, a truer revelation of scripture. No, it's a lie. They're full of arrogance, they're full of lust. Verses 13 and 14 says that their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight, their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. Now, Roman culture was pretty debauched and the people Peter wrote to were converted out of that overtly sexual society, much like ours and many before. And the false teachers were shamefully bringing that into the church. Notice the haunting echoes of what's come about with Rabbi Zacharias recently. They prey on the weak and the unstable. They prey on the baby Christians, the new Christians. They eye up women in the church as potential partners. They're driven by lust. Don't be fooled by them. They're full of greed, verse 14. Peter calls them experts in greed. Earlier he said, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories just think of any of the prosperity gospel teaching which comes to mind here the gospel which says god will shower you with spiritual material blessings normally if you bless the church aka give the preacher a monetary gift one such pastor recently came to scotland to preach invited by a church creflo dollar it's a great name famously asked each of his members for 300 dollars for a necessary necessary note the word he described a 27 million dollar private jet experts in greed 
And what of their promised message? Does their message actually work? Look at verse 17. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. No. Want to encourage us? No. That A, encourage us, their message is nothing, but also see how you can be fooled by this message and it delivers nothing. They go after then and entice for spiritually unstable, we see. Verse 18 and 19. They go after new Christians. They go after ones rooted, uh, not rooted and grounded in God's word in the local church. They entice people, verse 18, who are just escaping from those uh, who live in error. They appeal to the lustful desires of our sinful nature. They say what people want to hear. They tell them to do what you want to do. Then we get this in verse 19. They promise freedom while they, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. They promise them freedom. Now, the call to freedom is at the heart of the New Testament. It's the heart of Jesus' teaching. Peter himself, in his first letter, says, live as free men yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, live as slaves for God. Peter recognised this would be an issue. The call of freedom wasn't to give freedom just to our passions. As verse 19 says, you then become a slave of depravity. The New Testament call of freedom recognises that Christ died to free us from guilt, free us from the power of sin. It teaches that we are free from the law in the sense that we no longer need to strive to keep it in our own strength. And that we're given new hearts by the Holy Spirit so we can freely delight in his holiness. But the false teachers distorted this. They twisted it. And they used probably, you can imagine, the letters of Paul particularly to justify their view. Paul himself knew his teaching was open to this abuse. In Galatians 5, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The false teachers probably use that exact quote, probably still do, to justify their love of money and praise and sexual pleasure, to encourage it in others. And all of the false teachers I've mentioned today, all of them in that camp are now arguing against the Bible's teaching on marriage, for example, and many other ethical issues are all arguing against traditional biblical teachings. And verses 20 to 21 then give a decisive warning to the church. They make it clear that it is possible to start out in the Christian life by all outward appearances to seemingly escape the corruption of the world. And yet, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower, the cares and riches and pleasures of life choke the young plant and it withers. It bears no fruit and it dies. It's possible to start out, not continue. I need to be clear that Peter's not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. He's definitely teaching, though, that church members can be lost. People who outwardly say they're Christians can turn away from Christ. But in verse 22, with these, these proverbs, pretty nasty proverbs, he makes it clear that we shouldn't be overly surprised at this. Dogs characteristically return to their vomit. And no matter how clean you make a pig on the outside, it's still a pig. He's saying that those who leave God's people, those who stop following his way of righteousness and holiness, never to return, simply show that their inner nature has never been changed. The point of verse 10, back in chapter one, as Langs explained it, is that they will, uh, the, the elect, God's people will never fall, but they'll enter the eternal kingdom of Jesus. And so we should be eager to confirm our election. 
eager to have assurance in light of what we've seen about the false teachers here. And this chapter in 2 Peter was written to help us do just that, written to help us have assurance, written to help us confirm our election to understand what false teaching is all about. There's a church in America, they preached on this series and they put up a sign when they taught it. It says here, divine physician's general warning. Ingesting false teaching will complicate your life, possibly eternally. Examine the scriptures to see if the things you hear are true. This is one of the main outworkings from 2 Peter. Study and know the Bible and the true message of God so you can identify false teaching. Do that together as God's people as we gather together. It's probably not been the most enjoyable of chapters to read or hear preached. I've heard the COVID vaccine for a lot of people makes you feel pretty rough afterwards. Not all medicine tastes good, but the good doctor knows exactly what we need. Every word in scripture is profitable. And if it helps increase our, our earnestness in realizing full assurance, then that is what then is what it's done its job. My prayer is that God will do that as we've looked at 2 Peter tonight. We're going to sing. We're going to sing of the assurance we have of Christ and where our hope can lie and should lie and needs to lie. Our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.